Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you Oscar-winning actor J.K. Simmons. Not, not quite my tempo. It's all good. No worries. Here we go. Six, Spider-Man! He doesn't want to be famous, and I'll make him infamous! The average human male is about 60% water. As far as we're concerned, that's a little extravagant. As mayor of Zootopia, I am proud to announce ZPD's very first rabbit officer, Judy Hopps. When I kill a man, it's because he's standing in the way of my constitutional rights. I kill to protect what's mine. I'll be honest, we're throwing science at the wall here to see what sticks. No idea what it'll do. Were you rushing or were you dragging? All right, let's get started. He's a guy who scared the heck out of me on Oz, but then was like the most perfect dad ever in Juno. He's taken on the Terminator, teamed up with the Justice League, done voice work for multiple cartoons, and he's the yellow M&M. So you think Santa will like these red and green M&Ms? I don't know. I never met the guy. Uh, Santa? Then, of course, there's his performance as the brutal yet brilliant Terrence Fletcher in Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. But before all that, Mr. Simmons got his first professional job in a theater production 2,000 miles away from Broadway. My first experience really doing theater outside of a couple things in school was at a little summer theater in Montana, the Big Fork Summer Playhouse. And um, the first six weeks or so, we're, we're rehearsing a play, and then we open it, then we rehearse another play, musicals mostly, rehearse another one open it, add it into the rep, and then you're doing two shows at night, rehearsing a third show during the day, and we're all, you know, pounding nails or sewing costumes or doing this or that or the other thing and, uh, and working hard and being a team and collaborating. I had taken a quarter off from school because I had a uh, professional engagement playing Figaro in The Marriage of Figaro with the Great Falls, Montana Opera Company for tens of dollars. And I came home, and my little brother was doing a musical with a local theater company. They're doing a production of Oliver. And a guy had just dropped out who played the knife grinder. And the director said, does anybody know a guy? And my brother said, I mean, my brother might do it because he can sing. And, and I went and joined that production. And there was a scene where we're all in the chorus, and we're having fun and doing whatever we're doing. And then Bill Sykes comes in, and he's scary as hell. And, and you know, there's this really charged moment of him just inspiring fear in everybody. And we were rehearsing that number for the first time, and I was actually having fun with whatever girl, I assume, I was goofing around with in the chorus. And then... The music changes and Michael Morrison, my buddy, comes in and he's Bill Sykes. And it was like one of those goosebump moments where I was like, God, he just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and I thought, this is awesome. This is, <laughs> this is what I want to do. I want to be able to move people. And uh, one of my first things at the Big Fork Summer Playhouse in Montana, I played the lead in Brigadoon. Mostly because I could sing, not because I was a brilliant actor. And uh, 
At the end of the first act, it's this real cliffhanger, and in our production, it ended with this sort of striving moment behind the scrim and blackout and intermission, and everybody goes and, you know, has an orange soda. And <laughs> I would spend the entire intermission lying on my back behind the scrim, staying in that moment for 20 minutes <laughs> and smoking a cigarette. Uh, <laughs> because I was learning how to do this. I knew that I wanted to inhabit this character and stay in the moment, and I was learning how to do it. And I think if I hadn't gone through that level of commitment as uh, sort of naive and as it was, I think it was an important process for me to go through. I don't take it any less seriously, and I hope that I don't work less hard at it. I just work more effectively at it. Similar to Brian Cranston in our previous episode, J.K. Simmons explained the importance of not bringing an unsavory character back home. That was a process for me, learning to not take it home with me. There was a reference to Oz earlier. That was one of my very early on-camera things. And uh, it was a lot of theater guys, really, on that show. And a lot of us kind of had trouble shaking that off at the end of the day. I mean, I'm literally wearing my swastika tattoo home, which my wife was really not pleased with. <laughs> By the way, she was doing Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, and I was playing the head of the Aryan Brotherhood during the day. <laughs> but, you know, in, in my case, it was really just part of the journey is, is just been learning how to put it on and, and, and also how to just shake it off at the end of the day. So I, I've gotten to a point now where I... If I'm working with actors who find it necessary to, you know, stay in it, then that's great. I can do that too, but... Over the years, it's just a, 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 an ability that I developed, not taking it home. Mr. Simmons views his early years of constant auditioning and doing small roles as a necessary step for any working actor. It's so hard to be a not-yet-successful actor, which, whatever, it's as it should be. It's like being an athlete or even just being fit and taking care of yourself. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So I think it's important to go through those trials and tribulations, but certainly auditioning, God, it just blows. And uh, <laughs> a couple years ago, I was auditioning a lot still and may audition again. The most important two things that I learned in, in those situations, audition after audition, is having some sides and having 30 seconds or a minute to make an impression on somebody, was don't make the choice that you hope is what they're looking for make the choice that you get from the writing. And again, even if you only have two pages, I mean, whatever, come up with a backstory. Use yourself and do your take on it because trying to do what you think they want is, you know, yeah, I mean, you'll get a job once in a while, but people are looking for you to bring something. So bring it. I look back and it almost seems like I had a plan, but uh, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and doing what I really enjoyed doing. And uh, fortunately, when I was scraping by and barely making ends meet, I didn't have a wife and kids and, and any responsibilities. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, in my case, the level of success, acclaim, uh, attention that I've been receiving has, you know, if that, if that had happened to me when I was 25 years old, I would not have been prepared creatively, personally, you know, in any way. Though he's careful not to call those early days a struggle. I wouldn't use the word struggle. You know, there were many years when I was barely paying the rent, but, uh, you know, I loved that time. I, I had a great time doing non-equity summer stock, you know, where I first really fell in love with what I do. And, uh, 
there were times when I went a while between acting jobs. But I don't know, struggle. Uh, I think there are so many people on this planet whose struggles are for real that uh, that I wouldn't use that word. I've loved my whole journey every step of the way. Even when the roles became more frequent, Mr. Simmons realized just how much more he still needed to grow. I had sort of gotten to a point on stage where I kind of felt like, ah, I know what I'm doing. I did my Montana time. I was in Seattle at the rep. I was Joe Pro theater actor, and I'm going to walk out here and do my thing. And I came across a director, David Trainer, who's now directing multi-camera sitcoms really well, who just wasn't buying it. He was just like, yeah, that's, you know, that's all right. That's fine. But is that what we're after? Are we looking for fine? You know, dig in. <laughs> You know, if a B-minus works for you, you know, great. But he just recognized that I wasn't working as hard as I could, you know, that I wasn't digging deep, that I was just doing sort of whatever was easy, whatever was obvious. He and a guy named Jerry Zachs, who's a great theater director in New York, is another example. And Jason Reitman, I'll put in there too, as guys who are able to really direct and really communicate and keep a disparate group of actors, you know, actors who are more and less experienced, who are maybe more from comedy, maybe more from drama, maybe more from improv, whatever, to just keep everybody on the same page. And to learn how to both express yourself and listen to what is being expressed and treat each individual as an individual and communicate with each person the way they need to be communicated with. And that to me is what separates an adequate director from a really wonderful director like a Jason Reitman. When going from theater to TV and film, he discovered that being on set is a lot of waiting and very little rehearsing. The first time I was on a set was a TV movie called Popeye Doyle, and then it was my first feature was a, a little part in the movie called The Ref. And they called me to set for rehearsal for my first sort of big scene. Go to the set after waiting around, of course, for two hours, which you're not used to when you're a theater actor, and then uh, we'd go rehearse and they go okay you knock on the door he comes to the door you stand here okay rehearsal's over now we're gonna light it and we'll see you in an hour you know? and I, I, was, I was in shock I was like when are we gonna rehearse I mean there was no we didn't rehearse we blocked and, and I was felt horribly underprepared I mean I'd learned my lines I did my thing but I was used to theater where you go over and over and over and over and over and it's a different kind of more sedate, uh, leisurely uh, process of exploring the characters. Since then, I've really very much, you know, in 20 years gotten to the point where I prefer as little rehearsal as possible. I like to work with actors who are just on their toes and spontaneous and people who can listen. Uh, it's, so, it's, so, it's so important and so difficult, and God knows I couldn't do it for many, many, many years as an actor, to just be there and actually be able to listen to the other person and respond to the other person, whether you're improvising or speaking Shakespeare exactly as it is on the page, the ability to listen is devoutly to be wished. Early on, even when he was trying to make ends meet, Mr. Simmons didn't take just any role that came his way. I've been driving my agent crazy for years because I've always been picky about, and it doesn't always show, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't some uh, some clunkers uh, in my past, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, even when I was from Hunger, I was, you know, I only wanted to do things that were interesting to me, and you know, the few times that I took a job just to have a job, you know, and pay the rent, 
were usually the jobs that I found unfulfilling and, and even just irritating and annoying. And that's a, that's a good thing to remind yourself of from time to time. And, you know, I mean, right now I'm in a position where obviously I'm, you know, a very popular guy all of a sudden and, and <laughs> <laughs> lots of offers and, uh, um, you know, big movies and little movies. And I'm trying to uh, make the same choices for all the same reasons. One of the reasons that I have continued to work all the way, you know, whether I was doing regional theater in the 70s and 80s or Broadway or what I'm doing now, it was just showing up, being on time and yeah. being able to do my job, whether I was, right. you know, the best actor in the world or not. I tried and I did my best and I wasn't a pain in the ass. And, you know, that goes a long way. With the TNT drama The Closer, Mr. Simmons trusted the creator so much he didn't even need to read the pilot. I don't think about results, and certainly uh, commercial results or audience acceptance of something when I read anything. I had done a show with James Duff the previous year, a show called The DA, which was four episodes, and just knew that he was a guy who knew how to write really interesting plots and believable characters and knew how to meld those into a procedural cop show. TNT was relatively new at doing that at the time, so as far as the commercial aspect of it, I just thought, James wrote it, it's a great character, and he actually wrote it for me, based on our experience the year before, and um, as a matter of fact, when he called me about it, he said that he sort of laid out the basic idea of the show and said, and I've written a part for you, you know, would you like to read it? And I said, yeah, I don't need to read it, because it's you, and I know I want to do it, so sign me up first of all, and then send me the script and let's see what happens. And, you know, seven years, and it was a great ride. And it was awesome, too, because I worked like two days a week on that show. So I, got, I coached my kids' baseball team for six years and never missed a practice because it was a part-time job, which was, uh, you know, awesome. Mr. Simmons took a similar leap of faith when working with a 26-year-old Damien Chazelle on Whiplash. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know who I am? Yes, sir. So you know I'm looking for players? Yes, sir. Then why did you stop playing? You know, Charlie Parker became Bird because Jones threw a symbol at his head. I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? Were you rushing or were you dragging? Answer! Rushing. So you do know the difference. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will f you like a pig. Now, are you a rusher, or are you a dragger, or are you going to be on my f***ing time? You are a worthless, friendless piece of sh whose mommy left daddy and who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a nine-year-old girl. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Whiplash's Fletcher is the professor of everyone's nightmares. Dr. Cud, you were, uh, you were rushing a little on that one. Whiplash's Fletcher is the professor of everyone's nightmares. And now you're dragging. Ah, oh, thank goodness I never had a teacher like you. He first played Fletcher in the short version of Whiplash, only after he saw the potential of Chazelle's feature-length screenplay. I got both scripts at the same time, so I was able to read the feature before we did the short. Great writing leaps off the page, whether it's Shakespeare or Arthur Miller or Damien Chazelle in this case. It was just such a brilliant and complete and thorough piece of writing, and that's great. And I've read a lot of scripts that I've thought, this is really, really good, 
but it just doesn't connect. And if there's nothing organic going on, I sort of, you know, I've learned how to do what I do for a living and I can make things work, you know, and sometimes your job is to make writing this not all that good work. So much of an actor's job is almost done for you if the writing is really good. Bad writing is really, really hard to act. And really the transitions can be the most uh, glaring or the most obvious. I think it's just staying connected with the character, the material, with what it is you're after. And sometimes you need to provide that yourself with good writing or bad writing. You know, sometimes you need to find your own way to get from point A to point B if it's not a straight line. But when you have the combination of a piece of writing where every syllable is just perfection and it's a character that you <laughs> oddly connect to, um, <laughs> it was just whatever, kismet. Mr. Chazelle cast J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller without even knowing just how perfect they were for their roles. One of the many uh, either happy coincidences or uh, pieces of fate, when Damien and I first met after I'd read the script and was dying to do it, one of the first things he said to me was, I don't want you to be too concerned about the musical aspects and the conducting and don't let that be intimidating to you because we can... You know, we'll have a technical advisor who can show you the basics and we can fake it, we can use body doubles and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I got a degree in music. Uh, from, uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to be Leonard Bernstein when I grew up and, uh, and I took a few left turns and uh, I was doing opera, I was singing. I was doing uh, conducting, composing, singing. I was doing operas and operetta and, you know, segue, segue, segue. And there we are. Wow. He didn't know that Miles Teller had been drumming since he was 15 years old either, and he wrote really? it for Miles. Yeah, yeah, it was just, it was all meant to be. Whiplash was filmed in only 19 days. Now that's a schedule even Steven Spielberg would have been intimidated by. Damien managed to create a very sort of unselfconscious set, despite the ridiculous pace and the lack of experience and everything else. So oftentimes, you know, if it's a scene where there's crying going on or there's just like really intense emotion, anger, you know, whatever it is, people often will sort of tiptoe around and let the actors prepare and, and everybody must be silent because he's going to cry now, you know? And it's just counterproductive. And, and uh, i tell you what, the thing that worked for me, well, a couple things. First of all, we didn't have time to do 11 takes. I don't know that we did more than three or four takes of any specific shot. Maybe the slapping, that was fun. Because <laughs> I just kept wanting one more. Um, but what was awesome in that particular scene was the times that I had to do it more than once, was that I'm looking out at this band, and some of these guys are musicians that had almost no acting background at all. But I'm saying what I'm saying, and I'm saying it to these guys, and they were all just there and giving and that helped, you know, I, I could have done another eight takes and picked a different guy to go to, and they were all there for me. And that's when the work is rewarding and beautiful, you know, when you feel like you're on a team. When you're working hard, when the camera's on them. Mr. Simmons stressed that young directors can serve their cast best by not trying so hard to prove themselves. I think oftentimes with young directors, they kind of have their ideas of how they're going to motivate their actors or how they're going to explain something to their actors or how they're going to ask for an adjustment from their actors. And, and you know, you're young and you're smart and you're nervous and, and you want to establish some credibility. And young directors sometimes tend to say stuff that's like, dude, I just did that. Because they sort of feel the need to say something. 
Oftentimes what directors need to do, assuming that you have the vocabulary and the knowledge to be able to communicate with an actor, I think the best thing you can do sometimes is just say, let's try it again. And that was the leap of faith because, you know, I mean, he's young. Uh, he was 26 when we met and very inexperienced, you know, film school. And I had no idea about him as a director. One of the things that he did best was like, you know, shut up and get out of the way. But I really, really, really like collaborating with a director and a dialogue with a director and being directed, you know, having a director who knows what he wants, A, and knows how to get that across, B, and knows how to get that across to a wide variety of kinds of actors. By far the most important skill a director has as a human being is just the ability to communicate with a vast range of people. And in Damien's case, it was just a real leap of faith. And I saw such growth in between the time we did the short and the feature. And not just in knowing when to back off, but, you know, it's one of those things you can't really know until you do it. You know, you can't swim until you're in the pool. You know, you learn, you get as fundamentally sound as you can. You watch, you learn, you study, and then you do. And as you do, just try to keep your wits about you and keep your ears open and communicate. Mr. Simmons has been able to jump back and forth from smaller indie films like Juno to massive blockbusters like Spider-Man. When I watched his performance as J. Jonah Jameson, for me it was like I was watching the character I used to read in the comic books as a kid literally jump onto the big screen. I don't pay you to be a sensitive artiste. I pay you because for some reason that psycho Spider-Man will pose for you. You've turned the whole city against him. In fact, I'm very proud of. Now, get your pretty little portfolio off my desk before I go into a diabetic coma. Boss, your wife's in the line. She said she lost a checkbook. Thanks for the good news. I want that wall-crawling arachnid prosecuted. I want him strung up by his web. I want Spider-Man! I really felt my job as J. Jonah Jameson was to bring that guy off the pages of the comic book. And I think, and this is the way the films were directed and written and acted, was that those scenes in the Daily Bugle were really the most comic booky scenes of the movie. And the most sort of almost anachronistic Preston Sturgis kind of vibe to them, which was my first take on it and which Sam completely concurred with. So I had done two movies with him before the Spider-Man movies. And he and I developed a rapport and a mutual trust where he gave me the freedom to create. And I guess that freedom has uh, come back in the cartoon series and without really being aware of it, I guess I've sort of made it my own more in the cartoons. And that's, uh, that's cool. That's fun. J.K. Simmons has always sought projects that excited him. But now that he's got more options than ever, he doesn't want to lose sight of what matters most. I've always tried to be picky. I've always tried to only do things that I found interesting, and that there have been exceptions to that. And there have been choices that I made that were bad and stupid and wrong. But just the sheer volume of stuff that's coming at me, not just since the awards, but really since the movie came out, really amped up a lot. So now it's largely a question of trying to maintain the balance between work and life, because as much as I love the work, People use workaholic like it's a great thing, and I strongly disagree. Work hard, prepare hard, but have a life. So I'm not trying to book myself 52 weeks for the next year. Having said that, there are a lot of opportunities coming, and because I do this for a living and money is a helpful thing in the world, um, money is part of what motivates choices. So 
my goal now is to try to find the balance between doing uh, big movies but still finding the little scripts that are out there, you know, that somebody's struggling to get made. And now, because I have a trophy, I'm able to attach myself to it. And not only can I help them get their funding and help them get a movie made for two or three million dollars, but I can say, I want to do this in L.A. And they go, okay. (laughs) Though he is still finding time to enjoy his celebrity. Honestly, the coolest thing about being famous now, I'm I'm throwing out the opening day pitch in Detroit. All right! I, I had lunch with Justin Verlander a couple of months ago, and, and uh, I'm looking for him to have a big year. So there's your answer. We wish the Detroit Tigers all the best. Thank you to J.K. Simmons for his words of wisdom and to all of you for listening. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor based on the guest speaker series produced and moderated by Tova Leiter. The episode was edited and mixed by Christian Hayden, produced by David Andrew Nelson, Christian Hayden, and myself. Special thanks to Ariel Seagard, Robert Cosnahan, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Not quite my tempo. It's all good. No worries. Here we go. (sighs) See you next time.